please join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord Jesus, please show us the fullness of what you just said to us here. We ask this of you, good King Jesus. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount. In the same way that Moses by himself went up Mount Sinai, there was a boundary around the base of the mountain. If anyone was to cross that boundary, they'd really be shot through with an arrow or pierced with a spear. Moses alone was to go up that mountain and speak to God. And there was a visual display before them that was designed to frighten them. They saw an angelic host. They saw fire poured down from heaven. They saw the glory of God. And Moses walked up and was there for 40 days. And they were so frightened. And here we have God going up to the top of the mountain in Matthew chapter 5, seating himself. But in this case, the people are called to the mountain top to hear from God. And Jesus proclaims blessings on them, the Beatitudes. And then he calls us, those of us who have walked up the mountain, to be, by the way, I love the way they did it in, in those days in the, in the synagogues. And the, the rabbi sat while the people stood. Everybody stand enough. <laughs> no, never mind. They stood and listened, and he called them to become salt and light. What was the reaction of the Israelis at the bottom of the mountain when Moses came back down? They said, Moses, Moses, you be our spokesman. We're afraid to talk to this God. No, Jesus calls us not only into relationship with him, but usefulness to him. You will be my partners. I am salt. I am light. You will be salt. You will be light. And then he says to us in verse 17, 
Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What was the accusation over and over and over again when the Jewish leadership would come to Jesus? They were trying to find some way in which he was fudging on the law of Moses. They were trying to find some point of accusation, either in his teaching or in his moral choices or in his leadership of his band of disciples for three and a half years. They're looking at him from, from behind rocks and bushes. Every time they came to him with an accusation, they left with their tail between their legs every time. And every time that it is specified that his Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes coming to question him, every time it says in Matthew's gospel to the effect, Jesus saying to them, you're going where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. You're going to the lake of fire. These are the religious leaders who were respected. The Pharisees in the Jewish eyes, the Pharisees were the Jewish supermen. And by the way, the Pharisees saw themselves as the Jewish supermen. And Jesus reserved those words. I don't know of any other people. And by the way, John the Baptist did the same thing. You brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And here, what are they going to do? They're going to be, they're peeking at him from behind rocks and bushes for three and a half years, and then they can't find a single accusation. Every time they try to corner him, they end up fleeing. What does he say in verse 17? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And yet that was always their point of accusation. They were trying to find a disagreement between Jesus and the law. And they couldn't ever really do it. Even, and Darren's been preaching through Acts on Wednesday nights. What was the accusation the Jews made against Stephen? He is denouncing Moses and this temple, this place of our worship. Eh, lie. They couldn't tell the truth because then they'd end up repenting. <laughs> Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Just the opposite. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Well, what does the law do? The law The law is a diagnostic tool that has a uniform effect on every single son and daughter of Adam. Condemnation. Condemnation condemnation. You're guilty. You're sinful. You're not at all like God. 
There's only one son of Adam that is an exception. And he was the one promised way back in the garden where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus is the seed of the woman. This is reinforced in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. Why? Because his father is God. He is true God of true God. He is God, fully God, fully man, drawing his humanity, all of his humanity from Mary. The seed, he's the seed of the woman. He's the virgin-born son. Therefore, by the way, ladies, thank you very much. We get our fallen nature from the daddy, not the mama. The fallen nature, that's why we bear the condemnation of Adam. In Ad, the Bible says, in Adam all die, not in Eve all die, in Adam all die, because we receive our condemnation, our fallen nature from our father. Jesus had no human father. God is his father. He's born of a human woman. He draws all of his humanity from her, and it is untainted humanity. And so here he is, by his nature, fully God, fully man, and he lived out the law. You can take the Ten Commandments and examine Jesus' life, and he is the perfect embodiment of what the law declared. What was a condemning thing to every other human being was to him nothing but a source of accolades. You could put the Jesus and his life and his choices up here, and you could put the Ten Commandments over here, and there was a perfect blending. No dislocation, no condemnation at all. And he could stand before his accusers after his arrest and say to the high priest, Annas, and then the high priest, Caiaphas, and to the Sanhedrin during the time of his e illegal trial and be able to say to them, which of you accuses me of sin? And they couldn't, even though it was an illegal trial where they had contrived all the testimony and brought lying witnesses in, they still couldn't get two to agree. And you had to have two or three witnesses agreeing. His worst enemies <laughs> controlling... The entire context couldn't find an accus make an accusation stick. He's holy. He's holy. He lived it out. I have come to fulfill the law. He could say to his worst enemies, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Which of you accuses me of sin? Name it. I mean, if anybody else said that, we'd be, ah, stop it. But not Jesus. 
I've come to fulfill the law. And uniquely, he's the only one that could have done it, the prophets. I've already mentioned two prophecies. He is the Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin-born son. Emmanuel, God with us. When the Magi, as we've seen in Matthew's gospel, when the Magi came into the house in Bethlehem where Jesus and his mother were, they worshipped him because he's God. They even went to Jerusalem before that and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Freaking out the Jewish leadership in Herod the Great. come to fulfill the prophets also. Psalm 22, verse 1, written a thousand years before Jesus' birth. My God, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later in that same psalm, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion had not even been invented yet. And David is saying, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They have given me vinegar to drink. They cast lots for my garments. Isaiah 53. There is no more detailed passage in the Bible, including the New Testament, that explains the effect of Jesus' work on the cross. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it explains how do we enter into right relationship with God. We present, Isaiah 53, we present to God as our offering the travail of his soul. While on that cross. And he, God the Father, will see that offering and will justify us. This is 700 years before Jesus is born. He fulfills the prophets. He fulfills the prophets. Psalm 16, quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in reference to the resurrection. It's a psalm of David, but Peter says in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, David isn't talking about himself. We can take a guided tour of his tomb. He's still in it. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. I will enter into life. It is, the, it is the prophecy about Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. Psalm 16, again, a thousand years before his birth. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I kept the law for you. I also kept the law in the fact that those very ones examining me for sin that could find none had been the men who for days before had been examining Passover lambs, just looking for one flaw that would allow them to reject that lamb. By the way, it was, this was a uh, criminal enterprise being run by the high priest. Jerusalem in the days of Jesus is about the same size as Kerrville. About 24, 25,000 people. But during the feast days, 
100 to 200,000 people would show up. And that's why the upper room, that was a rented facility. Jerusalem, really, they made some good money renting out a whole lot of these homes. They had in the upper room was what they would rent out to worshipers who were coming for the feasts. And these priests had been examining these lambs. You could bring your own lamb with you from Cyprus. That you, I mean, I know this lamb is perfect. I have checked it out. They would somehow find some little flaw so they could reject it. So you would have to buy a lamb from the temple flock. And oh, by the way, we're talking a high-priced lamb. But they had been examining lambs for days, and here standing before them at his trial is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when he went to the cross, he had been examined, and they could not find a single flaw in him, such that even when they took him to Pilate, and Pilate said, well, what's the accusation? You want me to crucify him? Give me a reason. Well, you just listen to us and do it. Do it. They never gave a criminal reason. They just politically cornered Pilate, and so he did it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, and to fulfill the law, and to fulfill the prophets as no one else could. I alone can say I kept the law. I alone am the fulfillment of these specific prophecies. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, a, a jot, a yod, the Hebrew letter yod, is about twice the size of an apostrophe, and it's the only letter, it's a little letter, and it's, it's much smaller than any of the other letters. One jot and one tittle. A tittle is just a projection on a letter that makes the difference between one letter. Le, the, the letter race just goes The letter dalet goes And so that little extra little stick thing that sticks it, that's a tittle. What's Jesus saying? Not one jot or tittle. What's he saying? Folks, the Hebrew scriptures are inspired. Even the spelling is exactly the way I intended because I was in fact the one pushing David's pen as David penned his psalms and the other inscribers of the scripture. I was the one animating their hand. Could you imagine being David a thousand years before Jesus is born and you're sitting down to write a psalm? We just had a brother who sang a song this morning that he wrote. And David was the song writer and singer of ancient Israel. He was really good at it. And he sat down to write Psalm 22. And all of a sudden, he's writing the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as this coming out, he's like, what? And then later in the psalm, you've pierced my hands and my feet? David's got to be going, what just came off the end of my stylus? But it was fulfilled. 
Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Ladies and gentlemen, do not let anybody tell you that this message is debatable or, you know, and I remember as a small child being in a church, oh, we're, we've gone past that. We've progressed. Folks, it wasn't progression. It was a step back into barbarity. You can get no more refined <laughs> than God makes you by his mercy and his grace. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, the law of Moses is not a curative. It is a diagnostic tool. But in order to find the cure, you need the correct diagnosis. And so don't blame the Ten Commandments for your sin. It's not the fault of the Ten Commandments. It's the fault of your fallen nature. Your innate, inborn sin. That's the problem. It's not the fault. In, is the fault is not to be found in the law. Therefore, and as Jesus stood before his accusers, they could not find any conflict between his life choices and the law. Of, there's nothing wrong with the law. The Ten Commandments is still God's standard. Now, thankfully, it's not our only resource. We don't just, I have, in the strength of my character, I'm going to do what I never could do before. Oh, thank you. That's not the solution. What is the solution? Just before his arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, and all you Christian men's job corps guys can recite this, I will give you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. He has been with you. He will be in you. He will fortify you. He will dwell within you, and you will be able to do what you couldn't do before left to yourself. <sighs> law, there's not a single problem with the law. In fact, it is still a guide to us. But the resource isn't, thank you God, our own energy of character. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit who is free to dwell within us because we've entrusted ourselves by, to the work of Christ on the cross and we have been cleansed of our sin. Jesus kept the law, went to the cross, paid sin's penalty for us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He paid sin's penalty for us. We, with an open hand, say, God, please give me that benefit. He gives it to us, and part of that benefit, <coughs> secondary to our cleansing and our forgiveness and his mercy, is the grace 
of the bestowal of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in, walk in his moral standard, walk in his direction for our life. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. God hasn't lowered his standard. Grace isn't a lower, mercy and grace are not a lowering of his standard. They are the keeping of his standard, the enabling of us. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, and there are false teachers out there, believe me, who are teaching men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, does and teaches them, what is the great scandal that keeps coming on the church, and I'm thinking specifically of the church in America, but I'm sure it can be found worldwide, is when we find men or women who have been teaching a certain standard, and then we find out that they haven't been keeping the standard they've been teaching. Whoever does and teaches them will be called great in heaven's kingdom. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You see, the, what was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees? They had the law, and they would have said, the law, the law, the law. We are the people of the law. The problem was their only resource was themselves, just as I spoke of. And they could put on a good show. They could wear the right clothes. They could eschew the wrong people. They could condemn the right people. But you couldn't see inside of them. They kept their distance for a reason. Notice Jesus didn't keep his distance from the, from the crowd, did he? But they did. Because they didn't want people getting too close to them. One of those Pharisees was a man named Saul of Tarsus, later called the Apostle Paul. And what does he say of himself in his letter to the Romans? You know those Ten Commandments? Now, this is my paraphrase. You know those Ten Commandments? I could do Numbers 1 through 9. Number 10 killed me because number 10 was you shall not covet your neighbor's life, wife, stuff. And I was filled with coveting. That commandment beat me up. I was not a man of the law. I was, in fact, a sinner. And Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus with his face planted in the dirt outside Damascus, he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
I dare say, based on what Paul writes in Romans, that one of those goads was that Tenth Commandment was beating him up. He knew he was unrighteous. I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. But even if you were a scribe, even if you were a Pharisee, if you came to Jesus for mercy, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, Jesus calls him the rabbi of Israel, he came and found mercy. He came and found mercy. But a mercy made possible for us because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. So we come up the mountain to Jesus and we, he recruits us. He gives us his blessings. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And you are going to be the salt of the earth. You're going to be the light of the world. And then he says, and the law that had been your affliction will become fulfilled first by me, but then it can actually be carried out in you. That is an extreme contrast to the experience of ancient Israel before Sinai. This is Sermon on the Mount is God embracing us by means of his mercy and grace. Please do not let Satan lie to you and tell you, well, that applies to everybody in this room but me. Because I know me. And so does God. And you don't know <laughs> the other people in this room. Be very thankful you don't know me. And I, am sh I will be very thankful I don't know you because we would instantly reject or tend to, apart from God's grace, reject one another if we knew the fullness of what we look like before the, through the eyes of the holy God. But he welcomes us. He's the holy God, and he embraces us and welcomes us and says, I bestowed mercy on you. I bestowed grace on you. And part of that grace is the Holy Spirit dwelling within you so you actually can walk in my standards, my law. And it will be fulfilled in you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we could not have done for ourselves. No human being could solve the problem we had but you. you. You, Jesus, God the Son, became a man so that you, you could create the scenario where we are recipients of your mercy and your grace. And we actually can find ourselves to be useful to you for your praise. We ask that you would not allow us to forget 
what you showed us today from your word. Help us to walk in it, to believe it, to trust it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.